0: Today we're going to be both in Genesis chapter 3 and in Ephesians chapter 5. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. The ushers will bring you one. And if you don't own a Bible, keep it. So, um, anyways, we're in a series on the family. Hello, Shaheen. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, okay. We're in a series on the family, and this will be the third message on marriage, which I propose to you um, Three weeks ago was the heart of God's creation of humanity that he made marriage immediately. And so the foundation of family is marriage. And then we're going to build on that here and talk about children. We're going to talk about being single. We're going to talk about the whole aspects of family over the next couple of months. So hopefully there's something for everybody. But this week as I'm studying for this Genesis 3 and Ephesians 5, as we look at the concept of how sin affected God's plan. As we look at that, I got to look at. I got to study, and I saw a reference to the fact that when men propose to their wives, what is the traditional thing to do? Get on one knee and propose. How many men did that? Gosh, not many. I'm ashamed to say I didn't. I wanted to. I was chicken. We were in a restaurant. And um, I had planned on it, but whatever reason, I chickened out. I knew she'd say yes, because, come on. But, um, <laughs> um no, there's humility for you. Um, but as I was studying this, like, what does that mean? And here's what I saw. Kneeling to propose shows your respect, loyalty, and deference to your wife. It's a promise, if accepted, and she did, a promise of a commitment to her only, the entire commitment of myself to her well-being. So that, that is at the heart of what it means to propose to your wives, ladies. Excuse me, men. <laughs> it's a new world, I know, but not, not, not here. So. Sorry, completely. Can we start over? (laughs) Um, So let's, let's, I'll, I'll come back to this idea of kneeling. Let's remember the basic themes of the first two messages on marriage. And this is what we've covered in the last two weeks. First of all, we're all image bearers. Image bearers of God made equally in God's image. And God has brought those two and they've become one. He's established marriage as the most important human institution. Remember the bubbles I had before? How marriage was the husband and wife were core to the family, then beyond that was children and your parents and brothers and sisters are sacred bubbles, but you don't get to move down bubbles. At the heart of God's plan for family and creation, humanity is marriage, I believe. God created Adam and then Eve to be his helper, not to accomplish his own will, but to accomplish God's will. We talked about that. A very important aspect about when sin comes in, we'll see that man, husbands, want his will to be accomplished. So so we'll talk about that a bit today. And God established marriage as a covenant, which is defined as a solemn commitment expressed with vows before God and illustrated by a sign. And for hundreds of years in the West, the sign has been a ring. This is my commitment. Of, this is the sign of my vow to Teresa. Now what we're gonna do is look at the effects of sin on this marriage relationship, specifically Adam and Eve and how it spread to all humanity. And today we can, we're gonna to get um, as all, all the way through this series. There'll be some times you say, I don't know if you got that right, Tony. I'm not sure I agree with you. So like I say before, My heart is not that you agree with me, but that you search the scriptures, you talk to God about it, and ask him through the spirit to help you interpret scripture, what he intended. It's always the danger of reading scripture. What do I want it to mean? As opposed to what did God mean when he had it written, and I submit to that. So we're gonna start today in Genesis chapter two, actually verse 15 to 17. And this is the command was first given to Adam. So Genesis two, 15 to 17. Adam's been created, Eve has not been created yet, and God gives the command regarding the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So listen to this command first given to Adam. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So keep that in mind as we we move to the next section. That's the command given to Adam. Eve is not created yet. That's the rest of chapter 2. We get to chapter 3. Adam and Eve are in the garden. And there's a harmony. According to the last verse of chapter 2, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. So sin had not entered in, so there was no shame. There was a harmony in marriage. Then... The serpent comes along, who is Satan, and he tempts Eve, and he, and he comes to her and he brings first confusion about what God said. I'm going to summarize this part, confusion about what God said, because he said, did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree of the garden? What did God actually say? You may eat from every tree of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the day you eat of that, surely you will die. Well, Satan wants to bring confusion. That's how he does it, to bring us temptation, to, bring, to cause us to be deceived. He confuses us first. What did God actually say? And then he contradicts what God said. You're not going to die if you eat from that tree. God said you would, but you won't. Go ahead and do it. He calls God's goodness into question. That God doesn't want you to eat because then you'll become like him. So he's keeping it for himself. Eve becomes convinced of this lie. She's deceived and she eats. Then it says she gives to her husband who was with her and he eats. So right there, sin has entered the human race. Do you remember how I defined sin two weeks ago? What was my synonym? It's like, you know, What was my synonym for sin? Selfishness. selfishness. Remember, in, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what Jesus say? not my will be done, but your will be done. That's to understand that I'm here to accomplish God's will. In effect, even though these words aren't used in Genesis chapter 2 or 3, Adam and Eve said, not your will be done, but my will be done. So at the heart of sin is my way, selfishness. So that's what Adam and Eve did. Sin entered the human race, immediately shame comes into play because now they hide themselves in their nakedness. They cover themselves from each other and then God comes into the garden and they hide from God. I would suggest to you, when it says in the day that you eat from that tree, surely you will die. They didn't drop dead physically, but a death has entered in to their relationship with one another, something's gone wrong. They're now hiding from each other. There's shame, and they hide from God. This is a spiritual death. And ultimately, it's illustrated by the fact that God removes them from the Garden of Gethsemane, Garden of Eden. There's two gardens in scripture, and they're very related, by the way. One man says, not your will, my will be done. Thousands of years later, a man said, not my will be done, but your will be done and he reversed the penalty for sin for us. So God says to Adam, God asked Adam specifically, have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Because Remember, he gave the command to Adam. Eve was not created yet. So we presume, unless God spoke it again, but now here God is saying to Adam, I gave it to you, Adam. So we presume Adam passed it on to Eve. But he's coming to Adam. Remember what I said before, that I believe that God has called Adam and therefore husbands to lead, and the wives are their helpers to accomplish God's will, not their own will. Remember that? It's very important for today's lesson. And this is the part you may disagree with me on. And again, search the scriptures. But, so what does Adam do? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Here's Adam's answer. The woman you gave me. So what does sin do? If sin is selfishness, now what is sin doing? Not my fault. Not my fault. He goes to Eve, what have you done? What have you done? Then God immediately brings consequences to the characters of the story. The first person to appear in the creation story is Adam, then Eve, and then all of a sudden the serpent comes. So God reverses this order in chapter three, brings consequences to Satan, Genesis 3.15, which actually is a promise of the gospel. We do not got time for that today, but it's a beautiful promise, Genesis 3.15. Then he brings consequences to Eve and then to Adam. Adam's consequences are death on the human race. But let, today we're gonna look at Eve's consequences, not because we're picking on Eve, because it's her consequences that for her part in sin, that brings disharmony in marriage. So go to Genesis 3.16. I read from the ESV normally, and I'll get there in a moment. I'm gonna start with the New American Standard, and I'm gonna read the whole verse, only a part of it. So you see that, I'm gonna read the first clause. Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall deliver children. Then yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So here's where we're bringing in. There's consequences now. Eve, for your role, the harmony you had in your marriage is now going to be dissolved and there's now going to be tension. Could you go back? Thank you. Just go back to that. I want you to see those two words. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The word desire and rule. Those are our key words here. What do they mean? The word desire is only used three times in the whole Old Testament, the Hebrew word behind it, behind the English. It's used here. It's used in the next chapter in Genesis four for God talking to Cain. And it's used in Song of Solomon, chapter seven, verse 10. Where it's talking there about his wife says, my, I am my beloved's, I belong to my husband, and his desire is for me. So there in that context, the word desire is romantic desire, erotic desire. As you read the rest of the chapter, he was very erotic. And so the question is, is that the curse? Is that the consequences on Eve? that you're going to have lots of pain in childbirth, but you'll still want romance with your husband. I don't think that's it at all. And let me show you what I think it means by going to Genesis chapter 4, where the same two words, desire and rule, are used to refer to sin's relationship with Cain. If you know the story, Cain and Abel are Adam and Eve's first children, and Abel is a shepherd of animals. Cain grows crops. They both make a sacrifice to God. God accepts Abel's but rejects Cain's. Did I say it the opposite? Reverse that, whatever he said. But look at 316, now look at 4, 6, and 7. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? Because he's ticked off. If you do well, will you you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Do you see that? What is sin's desire for Cain? What is sin's desire for you? To control you. To control you. But he tells Abel, he tells Cain, but you must rule it. The exact same two words, one chapter apart. So clearly there's a a relationship here between what God said to Eve about marriage and what happens in Cain and Abel's life. So let's go back now and show you some other translations of Genesis 3.16 that why I believe this is not romantic desire, but a desire to control. So let's look at the ESV, Genesis 3.16. So to the woman, to Eve, he said, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So before this, there was none of this. Before sin, there was none of this conflict in marriage. There was harmony. Now conflict enters in. The New English translation says, you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. So let me me summarize this. If sin is selfishness, the first couple had a sinless harmony prior to sin, but then not my will, not your will be done, but my will done comes into play. Eve wants things to go her way, but Adam will force his way. There's the conflict in marriage. And I would suggest to you the idea of, history proves this out, just by observing history. Is not history filled with stories of patriarchal domination? And so, implicit in this is, ladies, you had a harmony. Eve had a harmony with Adam as Adam is called God has called Adam to lead the family with Eve as his helper to accomplish God's will. Sin enters in. Now in Eve is going to be desire to have it her way, but Adam's still going to have the power to control and rule his way. And I don't know how many men now thousands of years later I've heard say this in the church that God has called me to lead this house my way and you're to submit to my way. We're gonna look at the idea of submission today and what it means for a husband to lead. But sin is the one that has caused this idea of a man to have power and authority in the home. Here's what I would suggest you do with the words power and authority. And we'll, we'll unpack this in a moment. I believe God has called the husband to lead in the home He's given him the responsibility to lead his family, and he's gonna hold him accountable for leading his family. Does that make sense? Those two words, responsibility and accountability. Do you get that? Do you understand me, whether you agree with me or not? Do you understand me? When we men say, I have the power and authority, do it my way, that's because of sin and selfishness. We'll see that in a minute. Now we're gonna look at the spirit-filled correction. Even though Genesis, excuse me, Ephesians chapter five talks about the filling of the spirit. Even though it doesn't reference Genesis chapter three, I believe in the gospel where Christ has now redeemed us, he's conforming us back to his image, we are growing into Christlikeness, that the consequences of the fall in marriage can be corrected and family that is led by the Spirit. I think that's what he's doing in Ephesians 5. So go to Ephesians 5 now. Are you mad at me yet? Give me a minute. I don't like people mad at me. I like to be liked. But, and Teresa and I talk about these things all the time. And you know I have a very high view of Teresa. And I'll talk about her again in a minute. And she doesn't know it yet, so good. We'll just... Ephesians five. <clears throat> it says in Ephesians five eighteen, it says this: It says, um, "Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, that is excess. But be filled with the Spirit." And the point is this: You can't be controlled by the Spirit of God and alcohol at the same time. One or the other controls you. It's not saying never have a beer or glass of wine. It's saying don't get drunk, but be controlled by the Spirit. And then it goes into a description of what it looks like to be spirit-filled. And I'm just gonna summarize it real quick for you. It's not on the screen. And um, it says you know, that you are to um, addressing one another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we do that to each other, that's spirit-filled. And we sing to each other and talk to each other with the beauty of the Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, that's spirit-filled. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So a gratitude, a grateful heart is being filled with the spirit. And lastly, submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. Or the, 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 the literal Greek there, submitting to one another out of fear for Christ. And fear, by the way, isn't cowering before him. It's at this deep, deep love and reverence for him. So that those five verbs are what it means to be spirit-filled. Now what he does is he goes into Three relationships within the family. It's called family codes. Very common in the ancient world where ancient writers, Christian and non-Christian, would put family codes in their writing. Husband and wife relationship, parent-child relationship, slave-master relationship. So Paul now lays that out. What does a spirit-filled family look like? Are you with me? Following? So the first one he talks about is the spirit-filled marriage. So submitting to one another at the fear of Christ. So there's this mutual submission in life. Now he's gonna define what that looks like. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So let's stop there. Wives, so ladies, ladies only. No snarky comments, men. Submit to your husband. Is that a real favorable concept today? It's, um, why? It sounds demeaning. Inferior. Inferior. Was that a lady that said that? <laughs> um. <laughs> Look what it said there. I'm gonna read it again. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. It's not saying look at your husband as though he's Jesus, but the reverence and submission you give to Jesus, give that to your husband. So ladies in the room, if you're married and your husband's sitting next to you, I want you to look at your husband. Is he Jesus? <laughs> so first of all, do you ladies have a problem, in theory, a problem in theory, whether in practice you do it, do you have a problem in submitting to Jesus? Okay, but you just looked at your husband and you said he wasn't Jesus. But it says submit to your husband as to the Lord. That's a tall order. Because he's not Jesus. Does he always have my well-being in mind as he proposed? He's supposed to. So this is a tall order on you ladies. Let me finish reading what it says here. For the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is so unpopular today. And if you're here today as maybe a new Christian or maybe a, um, some of you are not a Christian, you're here hearing this, you're going, that guy is nuts. I'll never do that. And what I want to suggest to you is not the the holding down of ladies or, or the subjugation of ladies under their husbands, but a design plan by God that he makes a man and a woman to become one in marriage to accomplish his will, which was populate the earth and to have dominion over the earth as his vice regents as we run this world. And sin has messed all of that up. The gospel comes in with the power of the spirit, the power of regeneration. We can now come back to this idea of who are we as image bearers of God? Who are we as now one in the Lord? As Teresa and I now ask God, what is your will for us in our lives in this world? And God is calling me to be the leader in accomplishing his will. And Teresa comes alongside and we do it together culture really determines what it looks like for ladies to submit so this is, this is one of those things, is this a culturally bound command do you know what I mean by that there's some commands in scripture that are very culturally bound that we don't practice today the most obvious one is four times I believe, maybe three but I think it's four times in Paul's letters and Peter's letters he tells you to greet one another with a holy kiss. So how many of you did that today when you walked into church? Why not? COVID. <laughs> so you did it before COVID. <clears throat> yeah. Because many of you husbands, if I greet your wife with a holy kiss, I'm sure I'm gonna get a black eye and vice versa. <clears throat> See, that, that, that's not our cultural expression of greeting. So it's a very culturally bound command. So what's the point behind that? Do we just ignore that? Oh, we don't got to worry about that. No, we look at that culturally bound command and we ask, what's the principle behind it and obey that principle in our culture? You following me? So the principle behind greet each other with a holy kiss is the idea of godly affection. A godly affection when you greet each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And for us, that's a hearty handshake, a hug, or, but it's seldom. In fact, there's very, very few people in this world I kiss. So, so touch gets narrowed down, and kissing for me is very few people in this world. Um, and, and kissing on the lips is her. So, is wives' submit culturally bound and we could ignore it? I say no. Because if we do that, ladies, then we have to do that to every command in this passage. If it's culturally bound for a wife to submit to her husband, it's culturally bound for a husband to love their wives. If it's culturally bound for wives to submit to their their husbands, then it's culturally bound for children to obey their parents. You just can't pull one out you don't like or the culture doesn't like and say, that we don't obey anymore, the rest we have to. I want you to think through that. Struggle with that. The question becomes, in our culture, what does it look like? I've been a few trips around the world, and I've seen places where, in marriage, incredible submission, and I believe it looks demeaning on a lady. Those cultures apply this differently than ours. So here's here's a basic definition of submit. The idea of submit is a, is a Greek verb, hupotasso. Tasso means to order yourself, to put in order. Hupo means under. So hupotasso is the idea of, of ordering yourself under somebody. Okay, you with me so far? So with that basic definition, it's a volunteer reordering of yourself under your husband's leadership. A volunteer reordering of yourself under your husband's leadership. Now remember, husbands, this isn't about power and authority. It's about a responsibility to you given to lead and an accountability you'll stand before God someday you give an account for how you led. We're going to get to you in a minute, husbands. This is a long sermon, by the way, in case you didn't figure that out yet. I teach this in my premarital classes. And I remember one time at Grace Church, I had about 10 couples in this class. And this one lady was really struggling, just really struggling. And I want to acknowledge people's understanding of Scripture and their their own traditions and their own cultural backgrounds. I want to be able to them to express that in my Bible studies. And I said, you're really struggling with this. She goes, I'm struggling with this greatly. That's not how I was raised. You know, that men and women are equal. And so she perceived submitting meant she wasn't equal. And, and so, so when I explained to her the concept of, of God has given roles to each of us in life and calls us to those roles and holds us accountable to those roles. And the role of leadership for the man is, is, a, is a, a, a responsibility to lead in a godly manner. And he'll be accountable to see if he did that for his own will or for God's will. So when she heard that, she said, oh, so what you're saying to me is to submit is that I duck so God gets a good shot at my husband's head. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's funny, that works for her to understand. But there's truth there. Gentlemen, your wife is not given to you to be your servant. She's given to you to be your partner to accomplish the will of God. You are both made in the image of God equally. You're brought together to become one. In any relationship, somebody is held accountable for leading. It's just the way it works in the world. And God has called you men to lead. And we're going to see how you're supposed to lead next. So for me, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but for Teresa and I, this is, we got married in our late 40s. So we had our issues earlier. We got married. We had an understanding that was an agreement on this but also a mutual respect for one another that Teresa and I are so unified. Only one time in our marriage of 15 years has the idea of me being the leader of the home, I had to make a decision, come up to where it was in a conflict. And she said, God's called you to lead, you decide. So it wasn't me saying, hey, I'm the leader. She said it. I so trust her wisdom her power, her understanding of what it means to walk with the Lord and be one with me. I have no desire to run roughshod over my wife, none whatsoever. So in a real sense, we are utterly equal in everything. But that doesn't mean I'm not gonna be held accountable still. Do you hear that, men? However you lead in your homes, whatever your traditions are in your homes and your cultural background, we need to learn how to give deference and respect and honor to our wives as the only person for us as we lead in our homes to accomplish the will of God. So that's, that's ladies submit. We'll, we'll come and wrap it all up. I wanna talk now about husband's love. So here's the correction to husbands. If in the fall where it says, Eve, your desire will be to control your husband, but he will rule over you, and that implies harshness. Listen to Colossians chapter 3.19, a a parallel passage. Paul says this, "'Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them.'" So in this culture here, in this culture here that Paul's writing to, ladies were just about that much above property. They had minimal rights in culture. The Jewish culture, they had the least rights. The Roman culture, the second least, and the Greek, they had more. So three different cultures Paul's writing to. But in the end, this was a male-dominated culture. Very much so. In fact, in the secular writings where these family codes come up, where, where the writers are telling families how to behave, they're never men are never told to love their wives. Paul is breaking all cultural norms here. So I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me read to you 525. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So I suggest to you, ladies, just like you have this very tall order, submit to your husbands as to the Lord in everything. Husbands have equally a tall order to love you as Christ loves his church, which is utterly selfless. So as I said, Paul is breaking norms here by telling husbands to love their wives. In that culture, wives... A husband's responsibility to the wife was to make sure she had what she needed to live, food and housing, because her role was to have children. There's a saying that comes back hundreds of years later. I don't know how how old the saying is, but it applies to that time. It kind of applies today too, and it's this. You guys know the story of Lancelot, excuse me, King Arthur, Lancelot, and Guinevere, right? Hello? Yes. Okay. So we know that Lance, King Arthur, and Guinevere are married. But we know that Guinevere had a thing for Lancelot. So there's the expression, marriage is Arthur and Guinevere. But love is Guinevere and Lancelot. So the culture has done this. It still does it today many. Marriage is about children. Love is about a mistress. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It all belongs in the one, all of it. We don't get to do that. So husbands, love your wives. Revolutionary to Paul's day when he said that. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's keep reading that he might sanctify her. Now, this is talking about Jesus, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blame, or without blemish. So let's just stop there for a moment. Here is Christ's love for his church, gave himself up. So then it goes into what it means that he gave himself up, that he, he lived his life, died, was buried, rose again, in order to purify his wife. To remove, the wife being the church, by the way. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're part of the body of Christ. You are the bride of Christ. Jesus died, he loves you so intensely. He died to take your sin away and make you holy. As I translate that into marriage, husbands, live your lives in such a way that you make your wife beautiful. And I'm not talking about exterior. I'm not talking about makeup and clothes. I'm talking about her heart. As Christ lived his life and he died for his church, he did it to make her holy. Husbands, we are to live for our wives, to grow them to be like Jesus. We have that power given to us, how we treat our wives. We influence their walk with Jesus. It's an amazing thing given to us. I tell this in every wedding ceremony I do. I'll read this passage and I'll look at the young man. And I will say, "Say when you wake up every day, I want you to pray this prayer. God, help me today to love my wife, to meet her needs, to pursue her so that she has everything she needs to walk with you. Amen. So, amen. That is the role of the husband In the wife. In a very real sense, if we went to, if I had time to do this, I'd take you to Philippians 2, where it talks about how Christ humbled himself to save us. He was God in eternity, in glory, worshiped by angels. And it said he emptied himself of his glory and became a human, became a servant, died on a cross, so that you and I could have a relationship with the Father. So in essence, Jesus got on one knee and propose to us, not because he's subservient to us, because as our leader, that's how he saved us. So husbands, that's your role to love your wives like Christ loves you. Let's read on to see what Jesus thinks of you. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Look at that, nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Do you understand that? If you're a Christian, you belong to the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, you are his bride. He nourishes and cherishes you. As your husband, he nourishes and cherishes you. Do you believe that? It's so important that you grasp. So often we think I'm not worthy of that. Is that really true? Of course, we're not worthy of it. But that's that's the whole point. He does it because he wants to. He steps into it as our bridegroom and we as his bride. He nourishes and cherishes you. So, husbands, he's your example to nourish and cherish your wife. Remember that. Promise when you proposed. Respect loyalty, deference. Deference meaning, what do you want out of life? I, um, I have confession here, I know it's I'm just getting late, I'm sorry. In, in my first marriage, and if you're visiting today, I'm divorced and remarried, my, my wife chose someone else. And one thing she said to me, months later, as we were processing through the divorce, She said, Tony, I lived your life. I lived the boy's life because our three boys had grown up by this point. Now I want to live my life. And that um, floored me because I wasn't of the opinion I asked her to live my life. But bottom line, what my opinion is doesn't matter. That's what she believed. So I meet Teresa. Court her, metaphorically got on one knee. (laughs) But what's very important for me, and you can ask her later because she has to answer the question. I wanna know what she wants in life. What are your dreams, what are your passions? Not come join me and live my life. And if, if you've been in ministry, you know the demands of ministry on a pastor. And then we can make, had to say, well, ministry is more important than anything else, so live my life. I never said those words, but did I actually imply those things? And I want her to know she is way more important than this ministry here. Way more important. God didn't establish pastors in Genesis chapter 2. He established the husband and wife. Very tall order given to you ladies, very tall order given to you men. Look at verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's a book out there called Love and Respect. You guys heard of that? It comes from this, husband's love, wives respect. I believe it's a two way street. I, I want love and I want respect. She wants love and she wants respect. But Paul is addressing a cultural problem. Husbands that don't love their wives, they're seen as childbearers. And wives who don't respect their husbands because they're tired of being taken advantage of. So he's, he's correcting that. In our world today, we have to ha- how do we apply this? So, gentlemen, You need to think through, am I correct, that the scripture teaches that you need to lead your family to accomplish the will of God. And the way you do it in your marriage is to honor your wife above every human being, above your parents, above your brothers and sisters, above your children, and love her deeply. As you two come together to to ask the question, what is God's will for our marriage, both specifically... I mean, generally, his idea of Genesis chapter 2 to have children and to, to have dominion over the earth, that's what he told Adam and Eve, but also this is a specific thing. Teresa and I are asking the question, what's next for us? And we'd like to do some travel to do mission work. God, is that what you're, it's on our heart, is that what you're calling us to do? If that's true, then we need to come together. If that's what he wants from us, and I need to lead in that because he can hold me accountable. But tell you what, she's way more motivated than me, way more godly than me. And I'm just trying to, I'm serious, you guys. I, I need her, I depend upon her in so many things, so we are one. But God's going to keep me accountable to whether I led and her accountable whether she went along with what we decided was God's will for our life. And um, there's a day coming when we all stand before God and give an account for how we lived our lives in what he gave us. There's so much more, I mean so much more. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down any questions you have about this. Okay? Because at the end of this series in June, we're gonna have a question and answer. Because I know I raise a lot of questions that I don't answer or you may disagree with some of my answers. So I wanna have a Q&A um, that we will have in, at the end of June. So please write the questions down. Father, as I, as I think through this passage in that your son, Jesus, you, you cherish and nurture us. That's unbelievable. So I, I, I want to thank you for that intense loyalty and love you have for us, Jesus. And we as your church, I know me personally, so I assume others, don't always follow your will. I want it my way. And ask you to actually bless my way in selfishness. So open our eyes, Lord, to the depths of your love for us. Give me, you've already given me the power. Give me the willingness now to submit to your will. As you do amazing things through your church. And help us take that principle and apply it to our marriages. So, Lord, because your your design for marriage is so important in our world. and, And we've not done well in it, Lord. We have not done well in it. But it is supposed to reflect to the world. Our marriage is supposed to reflect to the world, your love for the world. So give us new eyes to see why we are married, Lord, above our own personal satisfaction, but to the divine plan. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your patience with us. And we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.